Okay, as it is the uh, big quiz next Saturday evening, um, we will, uh, I've just been, obviously, I'm going to be hosting the quiz, I'm thinking of a few questions, so here's a question to get you started. What do the following people have in common? All right, here we go. Barack Obama, Yasser Arafat, Mikhail Gorbachev, Al Gore, and the Dalai Lama. They're all what, bald? Ah, very good. They're all Nobel Peace Prize winners. Very good. Someone sign Steve up for your team. <laughs> yes, all of those are winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. Barack Obama is the latest winner of it, I think, unless they've given one for this year already. He won it last year. Um, and the prize, if you don't know what the Nobel Peace Prize is, the Nobel Peace Prize is given to those who have done the most work or the best work for um, promoting peace between nations and for um, working towards the abolition or the reduction of armies. All right? That is what you can win the Nobel Peace Prize for. So, uh, here's a question, because we're going to look at verse 9 specifically today. I thought it would lead you towards the answer of that question a bit too uh, quickly if I told you that earlier. Um, we're going to look at verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. So, is Jesus talking about Barack Obama, Yasser Arafat, Mikhail Gorbachev, Al Gore, and the Dalai Lama, and others who have won this, when he says, blessed are the peacemakers, when they will be called, they will be called sons of God. Is the prize... Additional to winning the Nobel Peace Prize and the one million pounds that goes with it, um, is the prize that they are called sons of God? The answer is no, <laughs> it isn't. Hopefully you knew that. Um, because actually in the same way as with all these Beatitudes, all of these statements that we've been looking at over the last few months when I've been preaching, Jesus isn't looking for a group of people who are going to fit a description he isn't out there looking who are the peacemakers in this crowd that he's preaching to. Which one of these are going to be um, the ones who are um, promoting peace between nations? Who's already doing the job? Well, they're the ones who are going to be called sons of God. No, that's not what he's doing. Jesus is describing us if we are Christians. Jesus is describing those who are believers, those who have repented, those who have, who have given our lives to God. So in Jesus' eyes, if you are a Christian, if you are following him and have given your life to him, you are more of a peacemaker than the Dalai Lama is. You don't get the million pounds, but you will be called sons of God. You are a peacemaker because of what God is doing. Now, we've talked about that before, but it's also worth pointing out that neither here is Jesus giving us a list of tasks that now we've become a Christian, we have to do, and that we can be quite daunted by, and that we can look at and feel inadequate to all the way down here. Jesus isn't saying, well, now you're a believer in me, now you have to be poor in spirit, now you have to work at being those who mourn, now you have to really try hard to be meek. Now you have to really hunger and thirst after righteousness and be merciful and get your heart sorted out. You know, sort that out and, and go out and be a peacemaker. And by the way, you're going to get persecuted. He's not saying, 
this is what you've got to work at. It's not like, um, like a, a, a kind of, you know, when you go for a job and, uh, and then suddenly you get a list of tasks. Oh, now I've got the job. This is my list of responsibilities. Have you, how many people here have heard of, of what's called the Peter Principle? The Peter Principle. Oh, two, two. More people knew the Nobel Peace Prize. But uh, Peter Principle, the Peter Principle is this. Everyone gets promoted to their level of incompetence. Everyone gets promoted to their level of incompetence. So in other words, if you're doing a good job at work, your boss will look at you and think, they're doing a really good job. I'll promote them to more responsibility. And maybe you do quite well at that. Oh, they're doing quite well. I'll promote them to this next level. And so everyone gets to the level where they don't get promoted anymore. Why don't they get promoted anymore? Because they're rubbish at the job that they now got. They've been promoted to their level of incompetence, and that's the, that's the level that they get to. And that's, that's the Peter principle. You might look around at some people and think, you know, I know a few people who have, who have proved the Peter principle right. You might be thinking, yeah, I'm looking at one right now. <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> You'd be right if you were thinking that. <laughs> many, many of us, <coughs> excuse me, many of us feel that actually that, that's a bit like what the Christian life is like. You see, we might have got hold of the fact that we don't have to be good at these things or anything else in order to win favor with God. We might have got hold of that. We might have understood that God comes and meets us where we're at. He brings his love to us. He says, you cannot achieve the standard of holiness that I uh, demand. And therefore, I will rescue you and I will do all the work. I will send myself. I will bring you to me. We kind of understand that. It's all about grace. But what we can then think is that once we've been brought into God's family, then now we've got a list of jobs to do. Oh, no. Oh, no, I didn't realize I'd signed up for all of these things. I feel inadequate. I feel incompetent. I can't do it. And we go, oh, I'm a rubbish Christian because I can't do all of these things now. That's not what it was about. God isn't, isn't bringing us to a position in him where we are then incompetent. God doesn't work and operate on the Peter principle. Jesus isn't telling us here how to become poor in spirit or meek or pure in heart or peacemakers. He tells us that this is who God is making us into. This is who God is making us into. Not that we have to become. God is doing this in us. He doesn't stop uh, just saving us. He doesn't stop when he just brings us into his family. He says, and I am going to keep working in you. And I am going to bring these things about in your life. You don't have to try so hard to do it. Because I'm going to do it for you. We inherit the character of our Heavenly Father. John said it so well earlier, didn't he? He said, God imparts into us, into us his DNA. God gives us his DNA. So we see that God is like this. These things that, we, that we're like, God is like that, and he's giving us the ability to do the same thing. So we will inherit God's character. We will become peacemakers. 
Because God is a God of peace. We will follow on from his son Jesus, who was called the Prince of Peace, in Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And he will give us that same DNA, because we too are sons of God. That's who we are. He doesn't say, he's not saying, if you are a peacemaker, you will be a son of God. He's saying, if you are a son of God, you will be a peacemaker. Because you're a son of God. You will have the same DNA as I do, as my son does, the Prince of Peace. So let's start by looking at Jesus and not looking at ourselves. Let's not look at ourselves, oh, I'm inadequate. Let's look at Jesus. See how adequate he is. How adequately he fits the description of the Prince of Peace, a peacemaker. And then step out in faith and say, God, I believe you are making me more like Jesus. You are making me like a peacemaker too. Jesus is, of course, the greatest peacemaker that there ever has been or ever will be. The greatest uh, man who is a peacemaker. He never won the Nobel Peace Prize, but he is the greatest peacemaker there has ever been. Let's have a look at Ephesians 2, um, because that outlines very well what it is that Jesus has done to make peace. We start in verse um, 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, who excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. That was where we all were. We were separate from Christ. We were separate from God. We were without hope. We were excluded from God's people. We were separate from each other. Not part of God's people. And then verse 13. But now, but now in Christ, who you once were far... Sorry. Now in Christ Jesus, you who, were, who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. It was God who brought us near. It was God who changed that situation. How did he do it? He did it through the blood of Christ. He did it through the shedding of Jesus' blood. That was what it was that brought us near. Not our efforts, not our applying, oh God, will you accept me now to be part of your people? We couldn't do that. We were brought near by Christ, by the shedding of Christ's blood. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So the two have become one. The two have become one. The division between Jews and Gentiles, those who were God's covenant people and those who were excluded, that division's gone. We're all one. But we're all one in Christ Jesus. We're all one in him, because in this one new body, God reconciled us 
to God through the cross. And he put to death the hostility. The hostility between us and God. Because outside of God, we're hostile to God. Outside of God, we want to do things our own way. Outside of God, we don't, we don't want to submit to God's will. We're rebellious. That's the sin that was in our DNA. But now God has come and he's brought us close. He's put a new DNA in us. And our desire is to come together, to know him, to be united with others. God has brought the two together in Christ Jesus. He's made peace. Verse 17. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. He preached peace. Jesus' death was preaching, not just speaking, but his actions promoted peace between us and God, between us and others. And consequently, verse 19, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but your fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Holy Spirit. This is who God has now made us. Joined us together, brought us from far apart. Individuals, people groups, brought together in one body, the ha- one household, the church. Bringing us all together, united in Christ, that we rise up where God lives by his Spirit. It's a glorious picture of what God has done and who is building us in his church. God has made peace with us. Jesus has brought us peace. Steve read it out earlier on today. And Jesus, uh, he was saying about peace being with you. I think that was what you said, wasn't it? Um, Peace. I bring you peace. That's the message that Jesus brings. The message of peace. Peace with God. Peace with each other. And now he tells us that we too are peacemakers. We too are peacemakers. That's who he's making us into. Same DNA. That's who we are going to be. That's who we are becoming. In what ways are we peacemakers? In what ways are we becoming peacemakers? Well, firstly, by telling other people about this peace. By bringing the good news of the Prince of Peace to others. Isaiah 52 and verse 7 says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who bring peace. Paul The Apostle Paul quotes this in Romans 10, doesn't he? And he's encouraging us, he's encouraging us and the Romans who he was writing to, to tell others of this good news, to let others know about this peace that has been brought. He says um, in Romans 10 verse 12, there's no difference 
between, so from verse 14. He says, uh, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's us now who are taking the good news of the gospel, the good news of the reconciliation that Jesus has brought, the peace that Jesus has brought to the world. We are bringing that to others. We're telling other people. We're living it out in our lives. And we're telling people the truth. Now let's remember, let's remember it's not the Peter principle thing. It's not, oh no, now we're a Christian, we have to tell people, no, oh, what a nightmare. Oh, I'm so nervous of that. That's not what it's about, remember. It's because we love God so much and are so amazed at what he's done for us, actually, we can't help but speak it out. We see that in Acts chapter 5, don't we? Early church. The apostles, those disciples who followed Jesus, who were so scared, remember? They were so scared. They were hiding away. Even after Jesus had been raised from the dead, they were still scared and hiding until God poured out his Holy Spirit on them. And then the Spirit came. And then they were out in the streets, weren't they? And they were speaking in tongues and there were signs and wonders going on and Peter's explaining and preaching to them. And and they're getting into trouble with the authorities and the authorities uh, arrest them. Um, But, uh, uh, and then then they, in chapter 5, they get get Peter and other apostles and they arrest them and they take them before the Sanhedrin, the council, the the kind of church council of the day. And they question them. And in verse 28, they say, uh, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name of Jesus. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. And then later on, um, after Peter's spoken, uh, and uh, there's a a chap called uh, Gamaliel stands up and speaks on their behalf. And uh, in verse 40, it says, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And verse 41, what was it that the apostles did? Did they go away thinking, oh, no, we've been told we can't speak of Jesus. That's it then. No. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Rejoicing that they'd been flogged. We'll look more at that next week. (laughs) And day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. The authorities are saying, we're flogging you, you mustn't speak of this man again. And they go out and go, yes, we've been flogged for Jesus' name. We're going to tell people. That's all they do. They never stopped. They never stopped. I heard a story about a man who was, um, people, he'd, he'd got to know someone who was a Christian. And this guy had been telling him a lot about Christianity, a lot about Jesus, a lot about God's salvation. And this man was, was impressed. And he said, he, said, he said to the guy who'd been telling him, he said, look, 
said, I, I see what you mean. He said, but there's one thing that bothers me. He said, I, I know that if I become a Christian, I've seen you guys, you're always telling people about Jesus. You're telling me about Jesus. He said, I couldn't do that. He said, it just fills me with such fear. The thought that I would have to go and tell other people about Jesus. He says, so I don't think I can become a Christian. Because I just don't want to do that. And the man said to him, well, you don't have to. You don't have to tell people about Jesus. He said, what? I don't have to tell people about Jesus. But that's all. I know, you're evangelicals. You tell people about Jesus. He says, no. You don't have to tell people about Jesus. He says, let me get this straight. I can become a Christian today and I can go home and I, I don't have to tell him. I don't have to tell my family. No, you don't have to tell your family. I don't have to tell my friends. No, you don't have to tell them. I can go home and I can keep this to myself. Yeah, you don't have to tell anyone. He goes, that's amazing. Fantastic. He said, well, that's it. I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to accept Jesus into my life. So the guy prayed for him. And the guy went, fantastic. And he ran home. And he went into his family and he said, do you know what? He said, I've become a Christian. I know God's love in my life. He said, do you know the best thing? I don't have to tell anyone about it. When you've got God's love in your life, God changes you. You've got a new DNA. You don't have to do it, but you want to do it. You don't have to share God's love. You don't have to, oh, I've got to go knocking on door. Hello, I've come to tell you about the good news about Jesus. Are you interested? No? All right. Next door. You don't have to. You don't have to. Because God will change you. God will do things in you. If you feel it's just a burden, oh, it's just a list of things that I've got to do. Oh, I'm just using, I can't do that. No. But if you just love God, that's my advice to you. Get to know God. Get to love God. Spend time with him. Delight in him. Terry Virgo was saying that, wasn't he, at uh, at North. He was saying, don't just feel you become a Christian right now. I've got to go out and do all the stuff and do all the work. He said, no. Get to know God. Get to revel and and delight in in the treasures that God gives you. In the wonders of his love. Oh, new discoveries every day. Oh, I can't believe it. This as well. What? I'm a son of God? What? You welcome me into your... I'm adopted as well into your family. Not just forgiven. Oh, it's amazing. can't believe it. Get to know him. Get to know these truths. Delight in them. Be amazed. Be astounded. What such treasure. Such treasure. And then, once you understand it, once you know it for yourself, once you just are just reveling in it, you won't be able to help it. Filled by the Holy... Oh, the Holy Spirit will fill me? Give me power? Wow. Oh, yes, God. More of you, Lord. More of you. I want more of you. Oh, God, I know it's because you delight to pour it out. Just revel in it. And then you'll, you'll tell others, you'll show others, people will see it in your life. Others will know. We can be peacemakers too, though, in a broader sense. 
Because we can be used by God to lessen tensions between others. We can be used, God, to seek solutions to problems, to be intermediaries in situations. But to be honest, the hardest time of all to do that is when we're involved personally, isn't it? And a lot of the Sermon on the Mount, a lot of what Jesus is teaching, is actually, he goes on and fills this out. And he, he explains what he means about, uh, 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 in applying some of, these, some of these verses that we find in the Beatitudes. So, for example, in um, Matthew 5 and verse 43... Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What Jesus is teaching is actually, he goes on and fills this out. And he, he explains what he means about, uh, 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 in applying some of, these, some of these verses that we find in the Beatitudes. So, for example, in um, Matthew 5 and verse 43, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your enemy and hate, sorry, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of the Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, well, what reward will you get? And not even the tax collectors are doing that. And if you greet only your brother, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, we might look at some of this next week when we look at, at, at persecution. Um, but he's saying here, love your enemies that you might be sons of your Father in heaven. In other words, if you're sons of God, then you will love your enemies. You will pray for those who persecute you. When there's people who have, have got something against you, have got a bit of a grudge against you, you won't just cross the street and avoid them. Um, if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing on that? You won't just say, oh, no, I don't want to see that guy. I'll just cross the street. Maybe they won't see me. Says, Everyone does that. Even the pagans do that. We're to be peacemakers in the situations that we're in, amongst each other. Jesus explains, doesn't he? He says, look, if you've got a grudge against your brother, go and sort it out. Don't just come and offer worship and sacrifice to God. He says, leave your, leave your sacrifice at the altar, go and sort out the problem you've got with your brother. Go and make peace. You know, there's, there's strong words about even coming, coming to the Lord's table. We don't come to the Lord's table when, there's, when we've got something in our hearts against a brother. Because the Lord's table, sharing in the bread and wine, that was the ultimate uh, expression and symbol for us of God's love for us in uniting us together and uniting us with God. We're all sharing, we're all one body because we all share in one loaf. So as we remember Jesus' death for us by taking the bread and the wine, we're remembering that, but we're also aware that we're sharing together. We're united together. All our divisions have been done away with because of the blood of Jesus. And we cannot do that if we've got a grudge against someone. So we go and sort it out. We go and make peace. Because God's made us peacemakers. And he's given us the spirit to be able to do that. He's enabling us to do that. There's a lot of practical advice in the New Testament as to how to be a peacemaker. A lot of practical advice. James speaks a lot of practical truths. And it's not just legalism, but it's what God is doing in us. He speaks, in James chapter 3, he speaks about taming the tongue. Just teaching us, really, when to be silent instead of being quick to say something. Someone says something to you, you're going to be quick to come back. Well, I think this. Quick to defend yourself. 
James says, no, you need to be, you need to silent. Learn to be silent. Learn when to, learn when to lower our voice instead of, instead of raise it in a situation that's tense. Learn when to smile when we don't feel like it. Just to diffuse a situation. Learn when not to talk about people behind their backs. Because that just inflames the situation and creates division in the church. I remember when I was a student, just become a Christian. Um, there was, uh, I can't even remember what the situation was now, but there was something, it's probably a bit of uh, juicy gossip, but I was about someone in the church or whatever it was, but, or in the Christian union, uh, you know, and, and you think, oh, I'll just share this in, you know, for prayer. Um, and, um, and, uh, <laughs> and I started off talking to, to, to my friend who was also a Christian. I said, you know, I'm not sure whether I should tell you this, but, you know, have you ever started a sentence that, I'm not sure whether I should tell you this, but, and he cut straight in, and he just said, well, don't then. Don't then. I said, but, but don't you, no, I don't want to know. You're not sure whether you should tell me. That probably means you shouldn't. So don't tell me. I thought, oh, yeah, he's right. He's right. I wasn't sharing it, out, going to share it out of a good heart. Don't speak. If you're not sure, don't speak. If in doubt, keep your mouth shut. It's a good rule to go by. You're not sure what to say, say nothing. I guess at the end of all this, you might be thinking, hang on, this, this, is, all, this is all very much focused on the individual. And I thought when I read this verse in Matthew 25, in Matthew 5, uh, verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, surely being peacemakers is actually about wider things than this. Surely there's wars going on in the world. Surely as Christians we need to be involved in some of this. You know, surely Christians can be involved in negotiation between world powers. Surely that's what Jesus is talking about, the bigger things. Why are you talking about me not saying something about someone else in the church? Why is it down to this individual level? Surely it's bigger than that. You know, there's, there's huge issues in the world. What, why is it just about the individual? And I would answer that by saying, well, that is what Jesus himself was concerned about. So you have to remember that the political situation at the time of, that Jesus was living was extremely fraught, extremely tense. The Romans had invaded and occupied the land and tensions were high. The Jews were expecting a Messiah to come, someone who was going to come and riding in and to defeat the Romans and to bring about peace. Yes, but that sort of peace, political peace, freedom from the oppressive uh, regime, the oppressive uh, force that had come and occupied. That was the peace that they were looking for when Jesus came in, even amongst Jesus' followers. So you see John the Baptist, uh, don't you, and, uh, and him being in prison and hearing about the miracles that are going on. And he says, he sends messages uh, to, to Jesus through his followers and says, are you the one who we hoped for? Or should we be looking for someone else? In other words, it's all very well doing these miracles and healing people and uh, you know, setting people free, driving out demons. But what about the big stuff? What about bringing about revolution? Even he, was Jesus' cousin, was unsure, didn't really understand. But that wasn't what Jesus was about. He wasn't about the big revolution, the big world stage in that sense. He, he had people come to him in Luke 13. 
describes this, Luke 13 and verse um, 1. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. In other words, they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, have you heard there are Galileans, and Jesus was a Galilean, have you heard there were Galileans who Pilate has killed? He's put to slaughter. In other words, they're trying to say, come on, Jesus. Aren't you going to do something about this? Aren't you going to respond to this? These are your own people. Come on. What did Jesus say? Jesus answered, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this, this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. Jesus turns around a situation where some people are coming to talk about the big political situation. And Jesus is saying, but actually it's you who needs to repent. It's your heart that needs to change. And he always did that. Because for him, the eternal destination of a human being was far more important than where a nation was heading at that moment in time. That's not to say that Christians shouldn't have involvement in these big issues. But at the root of all conflict and strife in the world is sin. And sin resides in the heart of people, in the heart of each of us. Political and social and economic situations will fail because government after government does not accept this. Government after government doesn't accept that the problem is, the root of the problem is sin in the human heart. And so it's like a stream that is polluted at its source, spewing out polluted water. And all that happens is is that chemicals are poured in further downstream to try and clean this stream, try and clean it up. More and more chemicals. The stream's polluted at its source. It's the source that needs dealing with. It's the individual's hearts which needs cleansing. Was Jesus out of touch with the real issues of life? No. He sees through what people saw and see as the big issues in life. He sees it in individuals coming to him. And he says, it's your heart that needs to change. And how's it going to change? Through his own blood. Through his sacrifice on the cross. And they will be given a new heart. A pure heart. You may think that you as an individual Christian can never have the influence that Barack Obama, the President of the United States, can have. But God's word tells us that you have more. You have more. Because our influence doesn't come through a political position, commander-in-chief. Our influence comes from being those who God has transformed, changed our hearts, and is making us into peacemakers. If you know God, Jesus has made peace between you and God the Father. And you are now a peacemaker in this world. And as you live your life, and as you get to know God more, and as you delight in God, and revel in his goodness to us, he will make you more and more like his son. You will become more and more a peacemaker until the day he returns. You will represent him. 
as you take the gospel out into the communities that you are living in, not out of any sort of, oh, I've got to do, got to reach my street. But God's put you in your street, a peacemaker in your street, a peacemaker in your workplace, a peacemaker in your school, a peacemaker in your community. You're a peacemaker in this city, in this world, and you're representing him, the Prince of Peace, as you go out into communities and individuals caught up with conflict and alienation and strife. We are his peace. Individuals caught up with conflict and alienation and strife. We are his peace. We are those who are bringing his peace. Let's lift up our heads. Let's be full of faith. Lift up our heads that the King of glory may come in to our hearts, that we may see it, we may know it for ourselves and bring it to a world which is so in need.